We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 59 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 10th, 2021, the day after Mother's Day. Hope you had a nice Mother's Day. A happy belated Mother's Day to all of the moms out there. You know, you have in life mothers and also mothers, as in M-O-T-H-E-R-S versus M-U-T-H-A-S. This podcast works for both, whether you are a mother or a mother. We're glad to have you on board. It would be nice, by the way, if the weather in our area would start feeling more like Mother's Day and, you know, spring. Uh, what were we in? Like the 40s in the mornings over the weekend? You know what's going to happen? This happens every year in this area. We're going to go from 40 to 90 in like two weeks, and, and we're going to end up never having that stretch of like six to eight weeks in the 70s. That's all I want. That's what I'm guessing what most people want, right? Spring. Not too cold, not too hot. Give me like San Diego weather. Can we have that for at least a little while? Give me the 70s. Medium range. Stay medium, as Jim Zorn once said. Of course, Jim Zorn also said that the Washington football team's colors were maroon, black, and yellow. So there is that. You know, they all get involved and they all got their gear already. And so they're going to be all colored up in uh, in the maroon and black and yellow. 
Yes, Coach Zorn. Thank you very much. Old Zorny, the Zorn star, a classic from him. Anyway, hello and welcome to a Monday installment of the podcast. What could be a news-breaking Monday for the Washington football team as it is set to host not one but two free agents for visits. Left tackle Charles Leno Jr. and free safety Bobby McCain. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. We have concerns for the Capitals to discuss. These injuries are not what you want. Going into the Stanley Cup playoffs, we have the continued rise of the Wizards to discuss. Another wild win for the Wiz over the weekend, and this time in a road game that was a big game from a standing standpoint. We have another series loss for the Nationals to get into, losing 2-3 or three at the New York Yankees, the last two games in walk-off fashion. We also have a very disturbing Nats-related topic that I will discuss, the F.P. Santangelo situation. Yes, I will go there. Uh, I mentioned this briefly in a recent installment of the podcast, was waiting for more to come out. Well, that more did come out over the weekend. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. I'll talk Orioles as well. Things uh, not so good for the O's over the first three games of a four-game series against the major league-leading Boston Red Sox at Camden Yards. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including, remember, if you would like to become a sponsor, an advertiser on the Al Galdi podcast, let the power of the pod work for you. Just hit me up, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Eric Parker. I got a kick out of this. So I received this from Eric, 1249 a.m. on Sunday night slash Monday morning. Just think, we all go to bed for the night And Galdi is out here starting his day with some new content to listen to for when we wake up on Monday. Yes, true that, Eric, true that. As I am reading this tweet and taping this segment right now, I look at my phone. It is 3.21 a.m. on Monday. The day has begun. The work week is upon us. We have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Email from Jerry Moore. John Tillman has done an incredible job with the Maryland program. So happy to see the Terps beat Johns Hopkins 12-10 to go 12-0 and and win the Big Ten Championship. Now go win the NCAA Tournament. Go Terps! Ah, yes, my man Jerry Moore talking some Maryland lacrosse. Maryland lacks. Uh, Maryland men's lacrosse, the number three seed in the NCAA Tournament. We don't talk lacks uh, on this podcast. I get a lot of requests from people to talk about a lot of different things. You have to draw a line somewhere at some point. But no doubt, Terrapins have dominated in men's lacks for years. Women's lacks as well. Uh, Maryland men's lacrosse. NCAA best 18th straight NCAA tournament now. Also, NCAA best 18th consecutive 10-win season for the Terrapins this season. Third Big Ten tournament title was won on Saturday with the 12-10 victory over Johns Hopkins. Remember, it's not John Hopkins. It's Johns with an S uh, Hopkins. We're going to name our next kid Johns Goldie, by the way. Terps remain unbeaten on the season. Look, I went to Georgetown Prep High School in Rockville. I respect lacrosse. You have to respect Lax. If you go to prep, you don't go to private school in Montgomery County and not appreciate lax. The best athletes in my high school, at least when I was there, played lacrosse, you know, not necessarily baseball, basketball, football, etc. It's always been amazing, though, about lacrosse, hasn't it been, how it is such an East Coast, mid-Atlantic region sport. Like, here are the top seeds in the NCAA tournament for men's lacrosse this year. The one seed, North Carolina. The two seed, Duke. The three seed, Maryland. The four seed, Virginia. The five seed, Georgetown. Like, again, mid-Atlantic region, East Coast for sure. I mean, North Carolina Duke is not really mid-Atlantic region, but Maryland, Virginia, Georgetown, those three schools certainly are. And it's not like there are no good teams beyond the East Coast. Like, Notre Dame is good in men's lacrosse. Denver is good in men's lacrosse. But Lax is our sport, man. This region, this area is outstanding. Has been for decades 
when it comes to lacrosse. This area, we do go-go music and we do lax and we do both things quite well. A tweet from Rhino, a little tidbit for you. Per hour, lads, the quarterback ball velocity as measured at NFL combines from 2008 through 2020 showed Josh Allen had the highest miles per hour at 62. Tied for second, our own Logan Thomas, along with Patrick Mahomes and Baker Mayfield, all at 60 miles per hour. Thank you for that, Rhino. I did not know that. That's pretty impressive. That Logan Thomas at his combine, in terms of ball velocity, 60 miles per hour, second best, tied for second best, looking at the data from 2008 through 2020. You know, there's no doubt Logan Thomas can pitch it, okay? Obviously, Virginia Tech quarterback for four seasons, 2010 through 2013. He has made a successful transition to tight end, as seen with his exploits for the Washington football team last season. But understand, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see this at least a little bit this coming season and maybe beyond, the trick play is very much a possibility with Logan Thomas in terms of him throwing the football. Now, we did see it once last season in terms of a completed pass. If you go back to the Thanksgiving win for Washington at the Dallas Cowboys, the glorious 41-16 smashing of them boys at AT AT&T Stadium, Thanksgiving 2020. Logan Thomas in that game did have a big completion. The drive that resulted in Antonio Gibson's first quarter five-yard touchdown run, you had on that drive a tremendous play. Logan Thomas on a first and 10 took the ball on an under center sweep handoff, ended up throwing a 28-yard completion to Terry McLaurin, who made a really nice leaping catch between two Cowboys defenders. Logan's got a gun. Now, obviously, there's more to throwing the football than just arm strength, as we saw with old Wayne Wayne last season. Remember, Ron Rivera told us over and over and over and over and over again that Dwayne Haskins had a strong arm. That's great. That's lovely. Uh, There's a lot more to playing quarterback than having a strong arm, as uh, we all know by now. So, you know, just because you have a strong arm doesn't mean that you're a great passer. But from a trick play perspective, a guy like Logan, right, quarterback turned tight end, the ability to utilize that, to take advantage of that is there. And I would not be surprised at all if we start to see some more of that in the upcoming season as Scott Turner can hopefully expand his playbook even more. Remember, we know Don Ron loves his position flex. Position flex. Yes, thank you, Ron. And so Logan's a guy who, in theory, does offer position flex. He's a tight end who also used to play quarterback. Logan Thomas has a cannon. He brings firepower to what he does. Just like one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker, aka John G. If you need to sell your home or thinking about selling your home, you have to sell your home and you don't know where to turn, John Grandland of Real Broker is who you need to contact. John Grandland's numbers don't lie. John G's homes this year are selling more than 40 times faster than average for more money than average. And best of all, they're selling for 99.89% of asking price. When John G puts a plan together, you can trust that plan and you can trust that you're going to get paid. Straight cash, homie. Straight cash, homie. Exactly. Just like Randy Moss told us years ago. Straight cash, homie. Here's what Diane, who had John sell a single family home in Vienna, had to say. Quote, I interviewed three realtors. John came in with an excellent marketing and pricing plan. He held several open houses, advised me on pricing, got me a great price in no time at all. I highly recommend John to anyone in Vienna slash Northern Virginia. End quote. John has flexible commission packages, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. To learn more, to get the value of your home, visit John G. Sells for free. 
johnggsellsforfree.com. You got nothing to lose. Check it out as you're getting your Monday going. johnggsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, give John a call now. Tell him that Al Galdi sent you. And understand that you calling John Grandlin helps this podcast out greatly. The phone number is 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. 47. John Grandland, a.k.a. John G. He'll sell your home quickly and for the most money possible. Great cash, homie. So today, Monday, is set to be a busy day at Washington football team headquarters. What is still technically the Inova Sports Performance Center, even though Inova wants a divorce from the team, almost certainly due to Dwight Shaw being a major financial benefactor for Anova. But anyway, not one, but two free agent visits per reports are going to be taking place in Ashburn on this Monday as Washington reportedly will be hosting unrestricted free agent offensive tackle Charles Leno Jr. and unrestricted free agent free safety Bobby McCain. Now, teams host and work out players a lot, but these two guys are established players. These two guys are recently released players. These two guys are people who have been good players. And these two guys each could help out Washington, especially, I think, McCain. More on him in a moment. But let's start with the offensive tackle, Charles Leno Jr. So the Chicago Bears released Leno last Monday. Charles Leno Jr. had a mixed 2020 season. That is true. Uh, Leno in the 2020 regular season for Pro Football Focus registered an overall grade of 74.6. That's not, you know, awful or anything like that. It's also not great. Uh, his pass blocking grade was just 69.4. His run blocking grade was 74.5. So the pass blocking was the thing per PFF. Leno in the 2020 regular season allowed five sacks in 42 total pressures. So he's not what he used to be. Ergo, the Bears end up releasing him and are moving on at left tackle. But understand, Charles Leno Jr. was a staple at left tackle for the Bears and was incredibly durable. Leno, over his final six seasons for the Bears, 2015 through 2020, played in all 96 regular season games. 96 for 96 he, for the last 93 of those games, was the Bears starting left tackle. So there are zero concerns with Charles Leno Jr. when it comes to availability, when it comes to help. He's also not that old. This upcoming season will be just his age 30 season. And Charles Leno Jr. is a great story. The Bears took Leno in the seventh round of the 2014 NFL Draft out of Boise State. Yet another reminder of why you should never just gift away sixth and seventh round picks. Those picks matter. And those picks can end up being very valuable players. I don't know how seriously Charles Leno is considering signing with Washington. I mean, clearly Washington already has options at left tackle. When you think about Cornelius Lucas, you think about Samuel Cosme, you think about Jaron Christen. Don't forget him. He was the starting left tackle to begin last season for Washington. And you still have Sadiq Charles, who maybe is going to have something to say about that left tackle spot, although it's quite possible he's now going to be a full-time guard. But if Charles Leno does end up signing with Washington, like, you know, maybe he thinks that he can come here and be the starter. Maybe Washington thinks he can come here and be the starter right away. Think about the depth that Washington has at the left tackle spot if Leno signs with Washington. I mean, Lucas, Cosme, Christian, maybe Charles, Leno. I mean, when's the last time Washington had that kind of depth at any spot along the offensive line, let alone the most important spot of left tackle. And think about left guard as well. I mean, as things stand right now, Washington has Eric Flowers, Wes Schweitzer, Wes Martin, maybe Sadiq Charles. Again, could be a tackle, could be a guard. But you are three deep, if not four deep, at left guard, in addition to being three deep, if not four deep, 
at left tackle. And I'm not saying that all these guys are all pros or anything like that, but for a Washington team that for years, for years, has had, okay, the starting offensive lineman, and then you kind of close your eyes and just hope that everyone stays healthy. You know, you did have Ty Insecki for a few years as a nice swing tackle, but for the most part, it's been beyond the starters, not much more. Now, at least on paper, and we'll see everything plays out clearly, but at least on paper, Washington has really done a good job of cultivating some depth along the offensive line. Ron Rivera deserves a lot of credit for this. The building up of the offensive line in a pretty short period of time, right? This kind of snuck up on people, but Lucas was a free agent find last offseason. Schweitzer, free agent find last offseason. Washington made the shrewd trade to get back Eric Flowers this offseason. Drafted Sadiq Charles in the 2020 NFL draft. Drafted Samuel Cosme in the 2021 NFL draft. And just like that, over the course of a couple of offseasons, and we're not done with this offseason just yet, like I said, maybe Leno signs with Washington, you've got yourself already some real depth along the left side. As for the safety, Bobby McCain. So the Miami Dolphins released McCain this past Thursday. Bobby McCain played a lot for a 2020 Dolphins defense that was very good against the pass. Uh, McCain last regular season started 15 of the Dolphins' 16 games, was number two on the Dolphins in defensive snaps. He played on 89.26% of Miami's defensive snaps last regular season. And understand McCain did this for a Dolphins team that finished sixth in the NFL in pass defense per football outsiders DVOA metric and finished number one in the NFL in third down defense. No team was better last regular season in terms of opponents' third down efficiency than the Dolphins, 31.2%. So a Dolphins defense that did very well against the pass and was the best in the NFL on third downs, Bobby McCain was a staple for that defense. Uh, McCain, for pro football focus, last regular season, overall grade of just 62.1. So that's not that good. So that would explain in part why Bobby McCain got released by the Miami Dolphins. His 2019 overall grade for PFF, 63.6. That said, the man who McCain could potentially replace for Washington, our pal Troy Apke, he had an overall grade for PFF for the 2020 regular season of just 53.8. So Bobby McCain, at the very least, is an upgrade over Troy Apke and maybe more. Bobby McCain is relatively young and has mostly been durable. 2021 season said to be just his age 28 season. McCain, over his six seasons with the Dolphins, 2015 through 2020, played in 87 of a possible 96 regular season games. He in the 2019 season played in just nine games due to a shoulder, but that's about it in terms of major injury-induced absence for Bobby McCain and his NFL career so far. Bobby McCain offers that thing that we know Ron Rivera loves. Wait for it. Position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, thank you. Position flex. It is possessed by Bobby McCain. He for the Dolphins, played both free safety and nickel corner. In fact, Bobby McCain's best single season overall grade with the Dolphins per pro football focus, was 76.4 in 2017 when he was a nickel corner. So Bobby McCain brings more versatility to the table. And Bobby McCain, in theory, does fit the Ron Rivera culture. McCain was a captain for the Dolphins last season and is a great story, just like Charles Leno Jr. Dolphins took McCain in the fifth round of the 2015 NFL Draft out of Memphis, played for the Dolphins for six seasons, including being a regular starter for the Dolphins over his final three seasons with the team. You know, we just talked about the potential depth for Washington's offensive line. If Washington signs McCain, and that's an if, because, you know, like with Leno, McCain may look at the situation here in Washington and be like, well, I don't know if I want to go there. That team already has options at my position of free safety. But if Washington signs McCain, and maybe it is to be the starter at free safety, who knows? Think about the depth at free safety 
that Washington all of a sudden has, right? The Shazer Everett, Jeremy Reeves, Bobby McCain, Kendall Fuller, remember, can play some free safety. That's a pretty good mix of guys from which to choose. Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio will have options at free safety. Having options, always a good thing. And someone who knows that well is a big supporter of this podcast. We're glad to have him on board. Dr. George Verghese, medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. So the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT really is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Having skin cancer does not mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sends you. That's 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. One game left in the Capitals' regular season, home to the Boston Bruins Tuesday night at 7. If you're like me and a lifelong Caps fan, this is an exciting time because the Stanley Cup playoffs are right around the corner. Caps in the postseason for a seventh consecutive season, 13th time in 14 years, 31st time in 38 seasons. So it's a good time of year. Things that we like to talk about are about to happen in terms of the Capitals and the postseason. But also, if you're a Caps fan, this is a concerning time. Because the Caps are missing a ton of key guys. And you have to wonder if we're being set up for a third consecutive one-and-done postseason for the Caps. I hope like heck that's not the case. But, I mean, you're not really paying attention if you're not at least wondering about that. So two games for the Caps over the weekend. Two home games against the Philadelphia Flyers. You had one win and one loss. First came the loss. It was a 4-2 loss to the Flyers at Capital One Arena on Friday night. And, you know, this game in a lot of ways was a, a missed opportunity for the Caps. Facing a Flyers team with nothing to play for, eliminated from postseason contention. Caps came out sluggish, perhaps a bit spent from the previous two wild games, both wins at the New York Rangers. Caps in the first period per natural stat trick, just 12 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' 19. And while the Caps were better in the second period, they got smashed in the puck possession battle again in the third period during which they, per natural stature, had just 12 five-on-five shot attempts to the Flyers' 22. Then came what happened on Saturday night, a 2-1 overtime win over the Flyers at Capital One Arena. The Caps stole this game. This is great. Caps were without arguably their four best players due to injury. That was not great. But the Caps still won the game, and in stunning fashion, with the Caps having pulled their goaltender Craig Anderson to go with an extra attacker. And yes, the starting goaltender for the Caps was Craig Anderson on Saturday night. Lars Eller, game-tying even-strength goal, which is 39.8 seconds left in the third period to even the game at one. Terrific one-timer from the bottom of the right circle. And then came the game winner, Connor Sheary. Even-strength goal, exactly four minutes, 
into overtime on a wrister from the low slot off a great pass from Nick Dowd in the left circle. This was not a game uh, the Caps were in position to win in any way, and yet the Caps ended up pulling it out. So I want to give the Caps a lot of credit for that victory on Saturday night. However, two things with that game on Saturday night. One, the Caps not defeating the Flyers in regulation, plus the Pittsburgh Penguins beating the Buffalo Sabres 1-0 earlier in the day, did clinch the East Division for the Penguins. So the East Division is off the table now. Pens won it, Caps did not. Uh, the two results on Saturday, they're guaranteed that the Penguins would have more regulation wins than the Caps would have, and regulation wins are the first tiebreaker. Caps and Pens still could finish tied in terms of points, but you go to that first tiebreaker, Penguins now have that in hand. So no division championship for the Caps, to whatever extent that matters. Personally, to me, it doesn't matter a lot, but that is now official, official. Caps are not winning the East Division. The Stinks stand are second in the East at 75 points, four points ahead of the Boston Bruins for third. Also with the game on Saturday night, the Caps won despite being incredibly depleted. And you might be wondering, well, did head coach Peter Laviolette just like rest guys instead of playing them when maybe he could have played them? Perhaps, but Laviolette during his virtual postgame press conference said, quote, we didn't rest anybody, end quote. I mean, wouldn't it be the first time in the history of sports that a head coach lied? I'm not sure, though, why exactly he would have lied about something like that. But Alex Ovechkin did not play for a seventh time in eight games due to a lower body injury. And remember, the one game in that stretch in which he did play, he played for just one shift. Nicholas Backstrom did not play on Saturday night due to a lower body injury. Defenseman John Carlson did not play on Saturday night, due to a lower body injury, Caps continue to be without Evgeny Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov on Saturday night, fourth consecutive game, each not playing in the first game of that stretch due to team disciplinary reasons, right? Remember, the guys were late to a team function, and now each guy is out due to COVID-19 protocols. And then there was this, TJ Oshie left the game on Saturday night due to a lower body injury. It's nothing but lower body injuries for Capitals players, with the exceptions of Kuznetsov and Samsonov these days, but Oshie left the game on Saturday night uh, due to injury. So we don't know where things stand with him. Oshie, by the way, had another goal in that loss of the Flyers on Friday night. Even Trent goal, 1851 into the second period. It was a milestone goal for Oshie. Goal number 150 in his regular season career as a capital. Point number 300 in his regular season career as a capital. The good injury news for the Caps over the weekend was that defenseman Justin Schultz was back. He returned on Saturday night of having missed six of the previous eight games due to a lower body injury, but still, I mean, we're a game away from the Capitals being in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and you're without Ovechkin, Backstrom, Carlson, Oshie got hurt. We don't know where things stand with Kuznetsov and Samsonov in terms of when they might be available off COVID-19 protocols. Remember, second time this season that Kuznetsov and Samsonov have not been available due to COVID-19 protocols. It's not what you want going into the postseason. I mean, there are basically two things that are said this time of year, every year in the NHL for playoff-bound teams. A, you want to go into the postseason playing well. B, you want to go into the postseason healthy. Uh, Caps are actually playing well, all things considered. Like, lost in kind of all of the chaos recently, you know, with the fights at the New York Rangers and the injuries, is that the Caps do continue to win. And like, some of the process stuff has been good for the Capitals. They've been winning in terms of puck possession battles. Like, you look at that win over the Flyers on Saturday night. Caps per natural stat trick had nine five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Flyers four. But the Caps sure as heck are not healthy right now. And we don't know if that's going to change anytime soon or not. Uh, but that's a worry, you know? And, and, and most years that the Capitals go into a postseason, they are pretty healthy. Like, I, I know they've missed various guys at various points, but by and large, the Capitals have been lucky going into the Stanley Cup playoffs over the years, especially in the Alex Ovechkin era, where you've had your horses for the most part. 
I don't know that they won't have their horses going into this year's postseason, but you got to wonder, right? Especially all those big names who were not available on Saturday night. A few other notes from the Capitals weekend. So I mentioned Craig Anderson was the Cap starting goaltender on Saturday night. Anderson is in his age 39 season. He was the starting goaltender for the Caps for just the second time this season. And he played well. I give the guy credit. He stopped 28 of the 29 shots on goal that he faced. He, per natural stature, stopped all three of the high danger shots on goal that he faced. Five of the six medium danger shots on goal that he faced. And all 17 of the low danger shots on goal that he faced. Caps in that game 0 for 4 on the power play, but 2 for 2 on the penalty kill. A lot of penalties in that game. Caps had six minors. Flyers committed seven minors. In terms of the goaltending in the 4-2 loss to the Flyers at Capital One Arena on Friday night, that was another Vitek Vanacek game. He stopped 25 of the 28 shots on goal that he faced. There's also this, the Capitals with these two games against the Flyers over the weekend, the loss on Friday night, the overtime win on Saturday night, conclude the regular season 14-6-0 in back-to-back games. How about that? I mean, that's pretty good. A lot of back-to-back games this season because of the setup with the schedule, right? Nothing but intra-division games, condensed season because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Caps over 20 back-to-back games go 14-6-0 in those games, including, get this, 8-2-0 in the second halves of back-to-back games. That's terrific. That's a great job by Laviolette and this team. 14-6-0 in back-to-back games this regular season, including 8-2-0 in the second halves of back-to-back games on the season. Also in the loss on Friday night, did want to note this, Daniel Sprung had another goal. Ovechkin missing all this time is meant time for Daniel Sprung, and Sprung has racked up a bunch of goals. I mean, if Ovechkin is playing, I'm not sure that the goal total is that much better from him as compared to Sprung. Sprung or even Schrant goal 16-19 into the first period on Friday night for his sixth goal in six games. But clearly, the biggest thing right now is the Capitals getting healthy. Ovechkin, Backstrom, Carlson, now Oshie, you know, where are we at with Kuznetsov and Samsonov? And let's avoid, please, anyone else getting hurt in this regular season finale Tuesday night against the Bruins at Capital One Arena. Well, guess who is no longer 10th in the Eastern Conference because that certain team now is 9th in the Eastern Conference. Come on, I'll give you three guesses, but you'll only need one. The damn Washington Wizards! That's right, Stephen A. Our Washington Wizards, they, as we speak on this Monday, are ninth in the East at 32 and 36, a half game ahead of the Indiana Pacers, who now are 10th at 31 and 36. And the Wiz now are just one game behind the Charlotte Hornets for eighth in the East. The Hornets losing at home to the New Orleans Pelicans, 112-110 on Sunday night. With this play-in tournament coming up, for the NBA postseason. Remember, it matters where you finish in terms of 7 through 10. 7 through 10, those are the seeds that will make up the playing tournament in each conference. The teams with seeds 7 and 8 in each conference each will have two opportunities to win one game to earn a playoff spot. The teams with seeds 9 and 10 in each conference each will have to win two consecutive games to earn a postseason spot. So you want to be 7th or 8th as opposed to 9th or 10th. The Wizards have a shot here, especially at that eight spot, especially when you consider the Wizards play the Charlotte Hornets in the Wizards regular season finale. Wizards have four regular season games left, including a game on Monday night. Wiz have back-to-back games at the Atlanta Hawks this week, Monday night and Wednesday night, each game at 7.30. Hawks, in case you don't know, are good this season, tied with the Miami Heat for fifth in the East 
at 37 and 31. Wizards then are home to the Cleveland Cavaliers Friday night at 7. And then the Wizards wrap up their regular season home to the Charlotte Hornets on Sunday. Time, TBD. One game for the Wizards over the weekend. It was another thriller, and it was another win. A 133-132 overtime win at the Indiana Pacers on Saturday night. A big game from a standing standpoint, to whatever extent you want to call games for the play-in tournament, big games. Uh, But the Wizards come through once again, and yet another close game for the Wizards here recently. This trend of high-scoring and or one-possession games for the Wizards really has been something else. I mean, just working backwards, you had the Wizards with this 133-132 overtime win at the Indiana Pacers on Saturday night. The previous game was a 131-129 overtime victory over the Toronto Raptors in Tampa last Thursday night. The game prior to that was a 135-134 loss at the Milwaukee Bucks on Wednesday night. Before that, you had a 154-141 win over the Pacers at Capital One Arena last Monday night. Prior to that, you had a 125-124 loss at the Dallas Mavericks Saturday night, May 1st. And just a few games before that, you had a 146-143 overtime loss to the San Antonio Spurs at Capital One Arena on April 26th. It has been one shootout after another. It's been one close game after another. But by and large, it's been one victory after another for the Wizards here lately. Wizards have won now 15 of the team's last 19 games. And this game, this win at the Pacers on Saturday night, what a game this ended up being. 33 lead changes and 11 ties. The Wizards overcame a 12-point fourth quarter deficit, ended the fourth quarter on a 24-12 run to force the overtime. Each team was bad on threes, but good on twos. And each team had a guy notching a triple-double for the Pacers. That was DeMontis Sabonis, who was a monster in this game. 30 points, 13 rebounds, 13 assists versus four turnovers and three steals. We'll get to the Wizards author of a triple-double momentarily, but I do want to get into what's going on here with Bradley Beal. So first of all, Beal on Saturday night, 50 points, a 50-point game for Beal. He scored the 50 in just 39 minutes, 27 seconds as a starter. His fifth career 50-point regular season game, that is the most such games in Wizards slash Bullets history. Beal went 3-7 of on three, 16-24 on twos, 9-11 of on free throws, also had five rebounds. However, Beal did not play in the overtime due to a left hamstring strain. He also, by the way, hurt an ankle in the game. And the Wizards on Sunday did announce that Beal will not play at the Hawks on Monday night due to the left hamstring strain. So bad news there when it comes to Beal. But boy, was he good on Saturday night. Beal in a fourth quarter that the Wizards won 32-23, had 15 points, two rebounds, and two blocks. Beal was so clutch in that fourth quarter. And when it comes to the scoring race, remember Beal is very much in contention to lead the NBA in points per game this season. He is now a half point per game behind Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors. Steph is at 31.9 points per game. Beal is at 31.4. Steph, by the way, going nuclear himself on Saturday night. Beal scoring 50. Steph pumping in 49 in a 136-97 Warriors blowout of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Late night on Saturday night. So that's some kind of race we have going on between Steph and Beal, but hopefully Beal is okay. You know, he's been banged up here a bit lately, and now he's not going to be playing on Monday night due to the left hamstring strain. But I mentioned the Wizards author of a triple-double. That was, of course, Russell Westbrook, and he did tie the big O on Saturday night, tying Oscar Robertson from most career regular season triple-doubles in NBA history at 181. Westbrook with his 35th triple-double of this regular season. That, of course, extends his single season and career franchise records. 33 points, 19 rebounds, 15 assists 
to go with two blocks in 43 minutes, 49 seconds as a starter. Now, Westbrook did commit seven turnovers, but he went three of seven on threes, just eight of 19 on twos, but also eight of nine on free throws. More on those in a moment. Also for Westbrook on Saturday night, and this didn't get nearly as much attention as Westbrook tying Robertson, but understand this, Westbrook became the first player in NBA history with two consecutive games, each with at least 15 rebounds and 15 assists. I'll be honest, I would have thought that that would have happened. It had not. Westbrook did it on Saturday night. First guy ever in the NBA with back-to-back games, each with at least 15 rebounds and 15 assists. Westbrook went just one of five from the field in the fourth quarter, but the one was a big one, a running finger roll layup in transition for a 124-122 Wizards lead with 21.4 seconds left in the fourth. And Westbrook in that fourth quarter had five rebounds and four assists versus one turnover. So Westbrook, to me, delivered in the clutch in the fourth quarter, and then in the overtime. Westbrook scored six of the Wizards' nine points in overtime, including making two free throws with one second left to take the Wizards from trailing by one to leading by one. That was something that was lovely to see because Westbrook has not been good on free throws this season, but he drained the two free throws with, again, one second left in overtime. Wiz go from down by one to leading by one. And then how about this? Westbrook with the game-sealing block. He blocked a Karis Levert right-wing three-point attempt as time was expiring. You cannot say enough about Russell Westbrook and how good he has been down the stretch of the season for the Wizards, coming up big time in multiple ways for the Wizards in the win at the Pacers on Saturday night. And the game really was the Beal and Westbrook show from a Wizards perspective. Beal and Westbrook on Saturday night combined for 83 of the Wizards' 133 points and when it combined 6 of 14 on threes. The rest of the Wizards, a combined 3 of 18 on threes. Wizards did get back Rui Hachimura from a two-game absence caused by an illness that was not COVID-19. Rui had 13 points, 6 of 13 shooting, and 6 rebounds. Alex Len was good on Saturday night and limited opportunity. Remember, the thing with Len is he starts, but he doesn't play much. Played for just 19 minutes, 54 seconds, but he finished with 8 points on 3 of 7 shooting, 10 rebounds, and 3 blocks. But it was an underwhelming game for Raul Neto, who's been very good lately. He's been starting, right? Started for a 12th consecutive game on Saturday night. Had just 2 points on 0 of 4 shooting, 3 assists, 1 turnover, 3 boards, and three steals. Wizards bench really didn't do that much with the exception of one guy. And it felt like for once, the one guy wasn't Daniel Gafford. He was okay, but I mean, he only had six points, two rebounds and four fouls in 1648 off the bench. Robin Lopez didn't do a ton. Davi Spurtons did hit a big three in overtime, but he finished just two of eight on threes. Did have the best uh, plus minus rating in the game at plus 17. But the guy who stood out again was Ish Smith. Ish Smith off the bench on Saturday night, seven points on three of six shooting, seven rebounds, and four assists versus one turnover in 1907 off the bench. So it was Beal and Westbrook, and then, you know, a little bit of Len, a little bit of Rui, some Ish, but that was about it. But the Wizards were able to pull off the victory. What a weird season this continues to be for the Wizards. It's a very difficult team to explain to someone who doesn't follow the team. Like, if you're not like us, and you're not a Wizards fan, you're not in it on the day-to-day, it's a very difficult team to try to talk about with someone who doesn't follow it because there's just there's so much quirkiness to it. The team has been so streaky, so Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, I've talked about this Eastern Conference, Western Conference thing. Wizards now are 14 and 24 against the East versus being 18 and 12 against the West, which is by far the better of the two conferences again this NBA season. There's also this up and down nature to the Wizards season. Wizards began the season 3 and 12, then went 10 and 6 to get to 13 and 18, then went 4 and 14 to fall to 17 and 32. And now have gone 15 and 4 over the last 19 games 
to get to 32 and 36. And yes, ninth in the Eastern Conference with a realistic shot to get to eighth in the Eastern Conference and avoid having to win two consecutive games to earn a postseason spot as opposed to having to just win one game in two chances to earn a playoff spot. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly. Thank you, Stephen A. Well, a second consecutive frustrating series for the Nationals of being swept by the Atlanta Braves in three games at Nationals Park. Nats lose 2-3 at the New York Yankees over the weekend. Big 11-4 win on Friday night, but then back-to-back one-run walk-off losses. 4-3, 11-inning loss on Saturday, 3-2 loss on Sunday afternoon. So the Nats, since sweeping the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park, are just 1-5, and five, have gone from 12-12 and 12 to now 13 and 17. That 4-3, 11-inning loss on Saturday, Nats blowing a 2-1 ninth inning lead and then a 3-2 tenth inning lead, wasting a gem from Max Scherzer. Nats had just eight hits, seven singles and a double to go with four walks, struck out 14 times. It was a long day at Yankee Stadium on Saturday. Game was supposed to start at 105. First pitch not starting until 3.30 due to a two-hour, 25-minute rain delay and then lasting for three hours, 15 minutes. And then in the 3-2 loss on Sunday afternoon, Nats out hit the Yankees 8-5 but had just one walk to the Yankees' 10. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Nationals were lucky. That was just a one-run game on Sunday afternoon. The pitching staff issuing 10 walks in total for the game. And among the culprits was, again, the Nationals' ace reliever, at least in theory, in Brad Hand. It was a bad weekend for Brad Hand. There's no doubt about that. He entered the series having allowed one run unearned in 10 innings in the season. But Hand in the series gives up three runs, two earned, in one and a third innings on four hits and three walks. We'll take the game sequentially. So the 4-3, 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday, hand allowing two runs, one earned over the ninth and tenth innings and getting just three outs versus allowing three singles and a walk. Had his first blown save of the season, fell to three for four on saves by giving up a run in the bottom of the ninth on a leadoff five-pitch walk at DJ LeMayhew. A one-out bloop single by Aaron Judge into no man's land in right field, despite, by the way, a great diving effort by the first baseman, Ryan Zimmerman. Uh, That was some kind of hustle by Zimmerman, and he almost ended up making a tremendous play. Unfortunately, did not and then came a one-out ribby single by Glaber Torres. Hand then gave up a run in the bottom of the 10th on a leadoff RBI single by Mike Ford. Remember, in that 10th inning, right, you're starting the inning with a runner already on second base. So your margin for error is super slim. Brad Hand is a guy, though, who can miss bats. He was not missing bats nearly enough over the weekend. You certainly didn't see that on Saturday. I know there was some talk about, hey, Davey Martinez should have had Daniel Hudson close out the game, or hey, Davey should not have had Hand out there for that 10th inning. I didn't have a problem with either thing. Brad Hand, again, he's your ace reliever. He had been very good. I mean, zero earned runs on the season going into the game. It's not like Hand has been leaned upon a lot. You know, there have been stretches in which we have not seen Brad Hand at all this season. So like, this is what he's here to do. In a series at the Yankees, Brad Hand is here to close games out, to get big outs, you know, to be your number one guy out of the bullpen. And he just did not deliver in that game on Saturday. And then he didn't deliver again on Sunday afternoon in the 3-2 loss at the Yankees. Hand facing four batters, recording just one out and giving up a run in the bottom of the ninth inning. He began things again by issuing a walk, in this case, back-to-back walks, a four-pitch leadoff walk of Tyler Wade, followed by a full-count six-pitch walk of Aaron Judge, who was serving as a pinch hitter. Hand then gave up a one-out walk-off single to John Carlos Stanton. And Hand had Stanton down at 1.12, was unable to put away Stanton, who is not immune to the strikeout by any means. And Stanton and the Yankees end up walking off the Nationals for a second consecutive game. Also, we should mention Tanner Rainey 
who did not have a good outing in that 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday. Rainey gave up the run unearned in the bottom of the 11th. Lead-off six-pitch walk, there's that word again, of John Carlos Stanton. Then a four-pitch walk, again, of Aaron Judge to load the bases. And then a super-soft walk-off infield single by Glaber Torres on a one-two pitch. I mean, that is the thing. In fairness to the Nationals' bullpen, there was an element of being babbipped over the weekend, all right? Babbitt is batting average on balls in play. There are times when you can make good pitches and induce soft contact and just the ball happens to land where fielders are not. That was in effect with Hand and Rainey to varying extents on Saturday especially. But bottom line, the guys did not get the job done. You know, Rainey is someone who we've been kind of waiting to finally arrive on the season. He did look good in that 11-4 win at the Yankees on Friday night. Rainey tossing a scoreless eighth in that game, actually issued a leadoff walk in that game of Tyler Wade, but then recorded three consecutive strikeouts to DJ LeMayhew, John Carlos Stanton, and Aaron Judge. But Rainey struggles on Saturday, hand struggles on Saturday and Sunday. There was, though, a lot to like with the Nats bullpen in the series. I mean, going back to the 11-4 win at the Yankees on Friday night, Kyle Finnegan in that game, a scoreless seventh inning. Now, what was notable about this, Finnegan in that scoreless seventh did issue a one-out seven-pitch walk at Gary Sanchez, despite having had him down in the count at 1.02, and then issued a one-out wild pitch. But Finnegan's walk of Sanchez snapped an amazing streak of Nats relievers having retired at 29 consecutive batters. I mean, that's the kind of season it's been for the Nationals' bullpen so far. The 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday. I mentioned Daniel Hudson. He faced two batters, got the final two outs in the bottom of the eighth, including striking out Kyle Higashioka on three pitches with a runner on first and one out. Uh, Finnegan on Saturday retired the three batters he faced in the bottom of the 10th inning. And then even in the 3-2 loss at the Yankees on Sunday afternoon, more good stuff. I mean, Sam Clay came into the game, bottom of the sixth, runner on first, nobody out, got three out, struck out Mike Ford, then induced an inning-ending 6-4-3 double play off the bat of Clint Frazier. And Austin Voth, who has been so good as a reliever so far, again was good on Sunday afternoon. Two scoreless innings. His scoreless bottom of the seventh comes despite giving up a one-out double to Brett Gardner and then issuing a one-out full-count walk, again that word, to DJ LeMayhu. Uh, but Voth got Jordan Carlos Stanton to ground into an inning-ending 4-6-3 double play. So, I mean, the bullpen cost you on Saturday and Sunday, but the bullpen also helped to save you for a good chunk of the series, as has been the case for so much of this season so far. In terms of the national starting pitching over the weekend and losing two or three at the Yankees, the way to me to look at it is so-so in games one and three, excellent in game two. And the fact that you lost that game two in particular really stings. So we'll just kind of go backwards here. Joe Ross was the starter for the 3-2 loss on Sunday afternoon. Two runs in five innings, seven strikeouts. If you just look at that, you say, man, Joe Ross is really good. And in some ways he was. He only gave up three hits as well, a homer and two singles. The problem was the walks. He issued five walks, Ross did. He threw just 53 of his 97 pitches for strikes. He had just one clean inning, which was the bottom of the fourth inning. Ross giving up a run in the bottom of the third on a leadoff six-pitch walk of Brett Gardner, a one-out seven-pitch walk of John Carlos Stanton, despite him having been down to the count of 1.02, and then a one-out full-count RBI single by Aaron Hicks. Ross giving up another run, bottom of the sixth, leadoff homer by Glaber Torres. Ross then issued a four-pitch walk at Gary Sanchez, then got pulled by Davey Martinez. So you hear, I mean, he's issuing a lot of walks, Ross was. That wasn't good. But still, ultimately, two runs and five innings, seven strikeouts. Ross was able to limit the damage. There's something to be said for that, where you don't have your best stuff, but you're still able to come away from the game with at least a halfway decent line. And consider this now with Joe Ross. So he had that one really bad start, giving up 10 runs, all earned, and four to third innings in a 12-5 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals in Nationals Park on April 19th. But if you take that start out of the mix, and I know I'm kind of playing with the numbers here, but if you remove the lone blow-up start for Joe Ross, 
He, over five starts this season, has an ERA of 163, five runs in 27 and a third innings. His overall ERA is 426, but if you take out his worst start and you just look at the other five starts, he's got an ERA of 163 on the season. I mean, that's pretty good, especially for a guy who did not pitch at all last season due to opting out to the season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And remember, prior to that, Joe Ross had dealt with injury and ineffectiveness for multiple seasons. Nobody was sure what to expect from Joe Ross this year. By and large, he's pitched well, and you have to ultimately say he got the job done in the game on Sunday afternoon. Speaking of getting the job done, Max Scherzer did that and then some in the 4-3 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday. Scherzer was spectacular in this game. One run in seven and a third innings, 14 strikeouts versus just two hits, a homer and a single and a walk. He threw 69 of 109 pitches for strikes. The 14 strikeouts, a single game record for an opposing pitcher at the new Yankee Stadium, which opened in 2009. Max was pitching on five days of rest as opposed to four, and he was dominant. Max held the Yankees numbers two through five batters, John Carlos Stanton, Aaron Judge, Glaber Torres, and Brett Gardner, to a combined 0 for 12 with 10 strikeouts. Max had 10 strikeouts over the first four innings. Max struck out six consecutive batters early in the game, Stanton and Judge for the final two outs in the bottom of the first. Torres, Gardner, and Clint Frazier for all three outs in the bottom of the second, and then Mike Ford for the first out in the bottom of the third. The lone run that Max gave up coming in the bottom of the third. One out solo homer by Kyle Higashioka on a one-two pitch. But for Max Scherzer now on the season, over seven starts, ERA at 2.33, whip a 0.78, and check out the strikeouts to walks ratio, 61 strikeouts versus seven walks. It was so painful that the Nationals did not win that game on Saturday. You get a gem like this from Scherzer in a season in which the starting pitching has been all over the map, and you're unable to come away with the win. That was brutal. That that was probably the worst thing about the weekend for the Nationals, that you ended up blowing a game in which Scherzer was lights out at Yankee Stadium. And then game one of the series, the 11-4 win at the Yankees. It's funny, you could actually argue this was the worst pitch game of the three from the Nationals from a starting pitching standpoint. Patrick Corbin was the starter. It's not like he was awful, but you know, three runs in six innings is not great. It works out to an ERA of 450. The good for Corbin in the game was that he gave up just four hits and he issued no walks. So, you know, all this talk about walks, Corbin had zero walks in the game and his velocity was good. Range between 92 to 94 miles per hour for a good chunk of the outing. But the bad for Corbin on Friday night was that three of the four hits he gave up were homers. He allowed some hard contact and he had just two strikeouts in throwing just 48 of 81 pitches for strikes. So there's still a ways to go, I think, with Patrick Corbin. In a lot of ways, the bar has been lowered off the horrible starts he had early in the season to where if he allows three runs in six innings in a game at the Yankee Stadium, you almost celebrate that. But no, there's still another level that he has been at and to me needs to get to. But again, you could work with three runs in six innings and the Nationals obviously did. And turning a game that was close into a blowout as that game went on, again, the 11-4 win at the Yankees on Friday night. So with the offense, it basically was two series for the Nationals within one. Offense is great on Friday night, bad the rest of the series. Nats out firepower the Yankees in that 11-4 win on Friday night. This was great to see. I've been begging for the Nationals to hit more home runs, to hit for more power. And the Nationals did that at least on Friday night, out homered the Yankees 4-3. And what I really liked about the Nationals' four home runs is that just one of the four was a solo homer. Josh Bell had a leadoff homer in the Nationals' three-run second. And that's other three homers came with men on base. That's been a problem for the Nationals this season. Haven't homered enough, and when the Nats have homered, 
the homers, it feels like have been, you know, solo shots. Where are the big game wrecking blows? And the Nationals had some of those on Friday night. Jan Gomes had a one out two run homer in the Nationals three run second. Josh Harrison had a three run homer in the Nats six run eighth for a seven three Nats lead. And Juan Soto had a two run homer in the top of the ninth for an 11-3 Nats lead. I mentioned that six-run Nationals eighth on Friday night. All kinds of sloppiness from the Yankees in that inning. Three Yankees errors in that Nationals six-run eighth inning on Friday night. So some notes regarding some of the Nationals' various position players. Juan Soto was back as an everyday player in the series. It ended up not being that great of a series for him. He did homer on Friday night, but he ultimately for the series went two for 12 with the homer, a single, and two walks. Remember the Nats last Tuesday reinstating Soto from the 10-day injured list, which he'd been on since April 20th due to a left shoulder strain. He did nothing but pinch hit over the course of the three-game sweep to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park last week. So you have the DH in these three games at the Yankees over the weekend. Soto was the starting DH games one and three, starting right fielder in game two. It was a bit concerning to me and disappointing to me that Soto wasn't the starting right fielder for more than just game two. That, that to me is a sign that Davey Martinez is still not trusting Juan Soto with the left shoulder, still not trusting Soto to play a good right field. So that was notable that Soto started in right on Saturday, but then was back to DHing on Sunday. Like I said, it was not a great series for Soto offensively. He did have a two out five pitch bases loaded walk in the top of the third in the 4-3 11 inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday, but he went 0 for 4 in the 3-2 loss at the Yankees on Sunday afternoon, including a first pitch pop out with Trey Turner on first and two outs in the top of the eighth and facing lefty Yankees reliever Wandy Peralta who had just come into the game. Interesting weekend for the Nationals, two Joshes, uh, Josh Harrison and Josh Bell. So Harrison was in that starting second baseman and number two batter in all three games. He had a big game one, but then did nothing the rest of the series. Harrison in the 11-4 win at the Yankees on Friday night. Big three-run homer on a bomb to left field in the Nationals. Six-run eighth inning for a 7-3 Nats lead. Also drew a leadoff five-pitch walk in the Nats two-run ninth. It was interesting to see Harrison homer in that game because he got robbed earlier in the game of an extra base hit by Yankees left fielder Clint Frazier who made a spectacular full extension diving catch and belly flopping onto the warning track in left center to Rob Harrison uh, for the second out in the top of the third inning. But good game for Harrison on Friday night, but then came the rest of the series. 0 for 5 with three strikeouts in the loss on Saturday. 0 for 4 in the loss on Sunday afternoon. Josh Bell, starting first baseman in games one and three, starting DH in game two, played throughout the series, went two for 14 with a homer, a double, and seven strikeouts. You know, Bell continues to tease us where he has some extra base hits. You know, he had a big homer on Friday night, leadoff homer that went a projected 423 feet per stat cast to center field off the Yankee starter Jamison Tyone in the Nats' three-run second on Friday night. And Bell did have a first-pitch leadoff double in the Nationals' two-run seventh on Sunday afternoon. But Josh Bell in the loss on Saturday, 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. And again, for the series, 2 for 14 with, yes, the homer and the double, but seven more strikeouts. He is still not in a good enough place offensively. And how about this with the series? It's a three-game series at the Yankees, i.e. in an American League park, i.e. a series in which you have the DH at your disposal. And yet Ryan Zimmerman starts just one game in the series. I I don't understand that. Like, part of the appeal of this series was that you could get Zimmerman in the lineup more often. Davey, for whatever reason, only ends up starting Zimmerman in one game. He was a starting first baseman in game two. He went one for five with a single and a couple of strikeouts. I mean, I'm not here to tell you that Zimmerman would have changed the outcome of any of these games, but plate appearance for plate appearance, you could argue he's been the Nationals' best hitter so far this season. 
I don't know if he's dealing with something physically and Davey just doesn't want to tell anybody. Davey certainly has not said that Zimmerman is dealing with anything physically. Like I said, Zimmerman did go all out to catch that ball in the loss on Saturday. Maybe he got hurt there and we're just not being told that. But I don't get this. Like, you're in an American League park. Like, the appeal was supposed to be, okay, especially with Soto back, Soto's in right, you can play Zimmerman at first, and you can DH Josh Bell, or you can play Bell at first, and you can DH Zimmerman. And instead, Juan Soto ends up being the DH for two of the three games. And Zimmerman, he didn't even play on Sunday. Like, Davey didn't even fire the Ryan Zimmerman bullet in terms of the pinch hitting off the bench. It's been very odd to me. Zimmerman's done so well, and yet it's played so little throughout this season. You know, I know less can be more with him, but how about we see a little more of him? Uh, that, that to me has been frustrating so far this season. Uh, some offensive bright spots for the Nationals in losing two or three at the Yankees. So let me give Starling Castro some credit. He had himself a nice series, starting third baseman in all three games. He went five for 11. I said five for 11. Okay, we wound up five and 11. Not very good. Well, no, he went 5-4-11, not 5-11, Steve Spurrier. So there's a difference there. 5-11 is bad. 5-4-11 is good, especially in baseball. So Castro over the weekend, 5-4-11 with a double, four singles, and three walks. Did a nice job, Castro did. He was a number five batter in the win on Friday night, number seven batter in the loss on Saturday, number five batter in the loss on Sunday afternoon. I mean, Castro in the 3-2 loss of the Yankees on Sunday afternoon, two for three with a double, a single, and a walk. Did a good job in that game. Went out double, top of the second, two out four pitch walk, top of the fourth, one out single in the top of the ninth inning. He has not hit for a lot of power, Castro, this season, but he's had some hits. There's no doubt about that. And like in terms of consistency, relatively speaking, he's been one of the Nationals' more consistent hitters on the year. Now, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, Sterling Castro is a decent piece. He should not be one of, like, your leading offensive forces. It's kind of been that way so far this season with Castro, but did a nice job, I thought, over the weekend. Also, Trey Turner overall in the series, 5 for 13. He was a starting shortstop number one batter in all three games. The thing, though, with the 5 for 13 for Turner was nothing but singles, so he did not hit for any power. He had no walks and he had no stolen bases. So, you know, it's kind of depending on how you want to view things with Trey Turner. Five for 13, yes, but five hits, all singles, no walks and no stolen bases. He did, though, have one of the more key at-bats in the series. Going back to the 4-3-11 inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday, Trey Turner, RBI sack fly off Yankees closer Aroldis Chapman on a 101.4 mile per hour four-seam fastball in the top of the 10th to get the Nats a key run. And all of this happens despite Turner having been down to the count at one point. Oh, two. So let's think about that. Top of the 10th, big spot against maybe not just the best reliever in baseball, but one of the best relievers ever in a role as Chapman. Chapman has you down at one point in the count. Oh, two. He feeds you a 101.4 mile per hour four seam fastball. And yet you're able to get bat on a ball to the point to where you get an RBI sack fly and play to run. That, that's some piece of hitting by Trey Turner to do that in that spot against that guy. So I give Trey Turner credit for that. And then Turner in the 3-2 loss at the Yankees on Sunday afternoon, three for four with three singles, including more production in some two-strike situations. Turner leadoff full count single top of the first, despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two, also had a one-out single on a one-two pitch in the top of the eighth inning. Two modest bright spots for the Nationals offensively over the weekend, Victor Robles and Kyle Schwarber. So Robles, starting center fielder, number nine batter in all three games, three for 10 with three singles 
and a stolen base. All three hits, though, came in one game, the 4-3 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday. Robles in that game, three for four with three singles and a stolen base. I mentioned the job that Trey Turner did against Chapman in that top of the 10th inning. How about the job that Victor Robles did against Chapman in that top of the 10th inning? Lead off single off Chapman on an 0-2 pitch that was a 101.6 mile per hour four-seam fastball. So here you had in this instance, Robles versus Chapman. Chapman has Robles down 0-2. Robles has struck out a lot this season. And instead of striking out, Robles is able to put bats on a 101.6 mile per hour four-seam fastball to the tune of a leadoff single. So really nice job by Robles there. Uh, also with Robles too, very good sacrifice bunt in the win on Friday night. Sack bunt on which he reached first base thanks to a throwing error by the third baseman, DJ LeMahieu in the Nationals' sixth-run eighth inning. And that seemed to be a case of Robles' speed forcing the bad throw by LeMahieu. And that was a key spot in what ended up being the biggest inning of the weekend for the Nationals. Again, the sixth-run eighth inning on Friday night. So some good stuff from Robles offensively. And then there also was what Robles did defensively. And if you happen to have this game on DVR or available to you, I would encourage you to check out this play. It was from the game on Friday night. Robles with a really nice play for the second out in the bottom of the second comes charging toward the infield to make a backhanded catch of a low-line drive off the bat of Clint Frazier. You know, this is one of these plays where the guy doesn't dive. It's not a play that's going to make the highlights on ESPN or MLB Network or anything like that, but that's a difficult play to make. Running in, you know, your first step is so key, you end up making this charging in backhanded stab of a low-liner. Like, that's good defense. Good defense isn't always about diving all over the place. Diving catches can be misleading, too, because if you take a bad route on a ball and you end up making a diving catch, It's a play really where you shouldn't have had to make the dive, but you had to make the dive because you took the bad route, that sort of a thing. Robles on that, in that moment, right, doesn't slide, doesn't dive, just does a really good job on a play that is underrated in terms of its difficulty. So I wanted to highlight there with Robles' defense. He's been very good defensively this season, off struggling defensively last season. Remember, he was outstanding defensively in 2019. I mentioned Kyle Schwarber. So multiple extra base hits for him for the Nationals in this series was a starting left fielder, number six batter in all three games, three for 13. So it's like, he's still not doing well enough, but he did have a couple of extra base hits. Had a homer, had a double, also had a single, a walk, and three RBI. The homer was a good one. It came in the loss on Sunday afternoon, went out two-run homer on a one-two pitch in the top of the seventh, a double, a two-out double in the Nationals, one run, six inning in the 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday. Nats are off on Monday, begin a three-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on Tuesday night at 7.05. The Phillies lost 2-3 at the Atlanta Braves over the weekend, including a 6-1 loss in the Sunday nighter. Phillies, though, are 18-17 and on the season. In case you are curious, the ex-Nat Bryce Harper is doing well so far this season, batting average of 292 on base percentage of 419, slugging percentage of 542. Nationals in this series will be going with Eric Fetty on Tuesday night, John Lester on Wednesday night, and Patrick Corbin on Thursday afternoon. All right, so also when it comes to the Nationals over the weekend is a very ugly situation. I'm not sure how many other people are going to be talking about this. I am going to talk about this right now on the podcast. It is the FP Santangelo situation. So on Saturday, we had multiple reports that FP Santangelo has been accused of sexual misconduct and that that's why he has been on and off as serving as color commentator for telecasts on Nats games over the last week. If you are a Nationals fan and you watch Nationals games, FP has been yo-yoed on and off, in and out, of being in that mass and broadcast booth for Nats games here. 
FP was not on the mass and telecast for any of the three games in the Nats three-game sweep of the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park last weekend. So talking about April 30th through May 2nd. FP then was back on the mass and telecast for the first two games of the Nats three-game sweep to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park last week, talking about the games on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. But FP then was not on the MLB Network slash YouTube telecast of the Nats 3-2 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park last Thursday. FP was supposed to be on that telecast. He was not. FP was on the Masson telecast of the 11-4 win at the New York Yankees this past Friday night, but then he was not on the Masson telecast of the 4-3 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Saturday. And then came the reports, and FP continued to be off the Masson telecast when it came to the Nationals' 3-2 loss at the Yankees on Sunday afternoon. So the report is this. FP's alleged sexual misconduct includes sexual assault. A 31-year-old woman told The Athletic that FP made unwanted sexual advances several years ago before sexually assaulting her. The article was written by senior MLB writer Brittany Giroli of The Athletic. I will read to you a portion of the piece. Quote, the woman who detailed her experience with Santangelo is not an employee of Masson, the Orioles, or the Nationals. She told the Athletics she thought about emailing Masson after it happened, but did not want to have to relive the experience and was worried her claim would not be taken seriously. She has no desire to issue a formal complaint and is not seeking any compensation. If I never saw him again, I'd be perfectly happy, said the woman, who also alleges that Santangelo sent her angry text messages and blocked her on social media after their one and only in-person interaction. But he's well known and it is bothersome to see someone in his private life not be respectful of people. I don't have any motives behind this other than I wanted to avoid this happening to other women, end quote. Now, in fairness to FP, he does deny what he's being accused of here. FP issued a statement of the athletic, quote, what I have read in your recently published article from an anonymous individual about me is untrue and did not happen. This is not representative of who I am as a man or a professional. I am confident that my name and reputation will be fully cleared, end quote. So I'm not going to do the thing here of, well, is he guilty or isn't he? I have no idea. These situations are always so difficult to figure out in terms of what the truth is. Many times in these he said, she said situations, unless you're one of the two people directly involved in the situation, you never know what the truth is ends up being. You know, there's a lot of gray area with this stuff. It's not easy to figure out. So I have no idea if FP is guilty of this stuff or not. It would not shock me if he's guilty of this stuff. You know, we have seen throughout our world over the last few years, a lot of people exposed for being complete phonies when it comes to this stuff in terms of like, you think someone's a good person and it turns out that person isn't so great. Sports history is littered with people over the years who had sterling reputations and ended up not being so great. So if FP Santangelo is maybe one of those people, I don't think it's necessarily a jaw dropper. At the same time, you can't just assume that he's guilty. So the truth, as is always the case with this stuff, matters a lot. I don't know that we ever figure out the truth on something like this. I will say this. I think FP is done. I I don't think we ever see FP Santangelo calling a Nationals game on Masson again. Barring something shocking, i.e. the woman takes back her accusation or something like that, I think FP is dead and buried when it comes to serving as a Nationals color commentator on Masson. There is an extreme sensitivity right now 
in Major League Baseball when it comes to issues having to do with women. MLB has been embarrassed multiple times in recent seasons in terms of being exposed for treating women poorly. You know, we had the situation with the New York Mets a few months back with the general manager, Jared Porter. There was the ugliness between the Houston Astros and the Sports Illustrated reporter a few years ago, going back to the 2019 postseason, right, when the Nationals, of course, beat the Astros in the World Series. Um, MLB Network, if you watch it, has made a concerted effort in recent months to do more things when it comes to women in baseball and having women on the network. So, like, this is, I mean, it's never acceptable, this kind of behavior, if it happened. But this was an especially bad time for this behavior to come to light if you're FP, because I, I just don't think there's going to be any real tolerance for this, even if, again, we never know 100% what the truth is in something like this. But I, I think FP's done. I don't think we ever see him on Masson again. If you followed the story over the weekend, you perhaps saw the statements that were put out by the Nationals and Masson. And I had to laugh at this. Not that the situation is funny, but the Nationals' feud with Masson did seem to spill over into this FP Santangelo situation as neither entity talking about the team and the network wanted to take responsibility for this mess. Like I said, I mean, it's been weird how FP is doing some games, then he's off the games, then he's back on the games, then he's off the games again. Nationals issued a statement, quote, late last week, we were made aware of allegations of conduct by FP Santangelo that are inconsistent with our values as an organization. We alerted Masson and revoked our approval of him as a member of our broadcast team. Masson assured us that they would investigate these allegations thoroughly. After Masson notified us that their investigation was complete and that FP should be reinstated, additional posts appeared. Once again, we notified Masson and revoked our approval of FP as a member of our broadcast team indefinitely. Moving forward, we will refer all questions regarding this investigation to FP's employer, Masson, end quote. So, you know, you don't need to be Merrick Garland to figure out what the Nationals are communicating in that statement of, don't look at us, blame Masson. They're the ones who were supposed to look into this. We kept telling Masson, we don't approve anymore of FP as a member of our broadcast team. Masson's the one that put him out there. And moving forward, ask your questions to Masson, not to us. I mean, I thought that was a pretty direct and telling statement from the Nationals, putting Masson on blast for this FP mess. And then there was the statement from Masson, which included the following, quote, Masson refers allegations concerning broadcasters who are former Major League Baseball players directly to Major League Baseball's Department of Investigations, as is appropriate under the circumstances, end quote. So Masson was trying to pass the buck on to MLB. So Nats say talk to Masson. Masson says talk to MLB. So that's the way it is right now. The Nationals feud with Masson spills over even into this FP Santangelo alleged sexual misconduct. I, I just, I got a kick out of that reading those statements there uh, over the weekend. So look, FP Santangelo as a broadcaster, he's been the color commentator for Mass and Telecast of Nationals games since 2011. It's been a while. Uh, FP really stopped what had been a revolving door of Nationals color commentators for Masson. Remember, it was Ron Darling in the initial season for the Expos as the Nationals in 2005. Then we had Tom Pachorek in 2006, Don Sutton in 2007 and 2008, Rob Dibble in 2009 and 2010. Every year to two years, the Nationals were changing who was in the booth for them on Masson for telecasts of games. FP Santangelo has brought stability to that role. Like, he's been in the booth with Bob Carpenter for a decade here, and I will say this about FP. He does know baseball, at least from like an X's and O standpoint. Like he makes good observations on the broadcast. He makes good points. He has good insights. He has good recognition of things when they happen. He's pretty quick. You know, I give him a lot of credit for that. Like I, I watch a Nationals game on Masson. I will learn stuff listening to FP Santangelo. But I will say two things about FP as a broadcaster that have always bothered me. Number one, FP is very old school in his thinking 
on baseball. And that doesn't make him a bad broadcaster, but I know for me, it's not my cup of tea. And FP's constant talking up of things like pitcher wins and player batting averages and constant talking down of things like shifts and launch angle. I I just, I don't know. I don't like it. I, I think to me, it's archaic. It's antiquated. In 2021, if you're not on board with the analytics in Major League Baseball, you're missing out. Like, this is the way the sport is done now. So if you can't, at at the very least, explain why the analytical approach is the way the teams are going, if you can't explain, like, FP does these soliloquies on, you know, the importance of player batting averages. And then, like, he won't even get into, well, yeah, to me, batting average matters, but I get the idea with OPS because of X, Y, and Z. And he never does the X, Y, and Z. He never explains it. And I don't know if it's because he doesn't understand it or because he just chooses not to say it. But, like, for the record, okay, batting average is an incredibly flawed stat because batting average does not factor in walks and does not factor in power. OPS factors in all three things, what your average is, but also what your walks are, right? Because OPS includes on base percentage, which includes batting average. Uh, and OPS includes slugging percentage, which factors in power. So that's why OPS is so much more telling and important and why teams go with it all the time. But FP like doesn't say that, doesn't talk about that. FP will always point out when a shift doesn't work out, never points out when a shift does work out. So like that always drives me nuts watching games. Like he's the first one to highlight when a guy hits a ball and the defense is in a shift and the ball goes to a normal spot where a defender would be and it ends up being a hit. He never brings up the countless times over the course of a game in which guys hit balls directly to players in shifts. Never brings that up. So like that always annoys me. But there's another thing with FP too, because you know, the analytics stuff, like, like I said, that's my cup of tea. I know it's not for everyone. I, I think though in 2021, you are way off if you're not at least talking about this stuff in an intelligent way, because it's the way of the game. This is the language of the game now. OPS and war and shifts and, and, you know, so many other things too. Launch angle, pitch tunneling, etc. Anyway, the other thing though with FP to me is this, all right? And this is subjective. I will grant you that. And I'm actually interested in your opinion on this. So you can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. FP Santangelo, to me, has come off as inauthentic over the years. The over-the-top homerism, I have never liked. First of all, why the over-the-top homerism? Like, think about this. How and why should F.P. Santangelo care so deeply about and be so attached to the Washington Nationals? He's not a D.C. guy. You know, I, I know he played for the Montreal Expos for four seasons, 1995 to 1998. Okay, I mean, that's it. That That's 20 plus years ago, he's playing for a team in Montreal that many years later became the team in D.C. Like, that to me doesn't really explain his attachment to the franchise. And I know he's been the color commentator for Nats games since 2011. But to me, and again, it's subjective, but to me, his extreme homerism has never felt genuine. You know, like if you watch Orioles games on Madison, Jim Palmer does not act like the homer that FP acts like with the Nationals, even though Palmer has a million more reasons to act like a homer calling Orioles games than FP has to act like a homer in calling Nationals games. And the way it's always come off to me is... FP is trying to overcompensate for having no real connection to DC baseball. See, because the Nationals just got here in 2005, you've had a bunch of people on Nationals broadcasts over the years who have no real attachment to Washington DC baseball, okay? Like Ray Knight. I mean, I liked Ray Knight, but what attachment did he ever have to Washington DC baseball? You know, FP Santangelo, same kind of thing. I mean, I, I just went through the color commentators who preceded FP, like Ron Darling, Tom Pachorek, Don Sutton. Rob Dibble, I'm not saying they're bad broadcasters, but like they had no attachment 
to Washington, D.C. baseball, but that's the way it's been here. Like, until you get into the next generation, until guys like, say, Ryan Zimmerman and Max Scherzer start retiring, you're not going to have people who you have a real attachment to in terms of being a Washington Nationals fan. But the -the over-the-top homerism from FP has always come off to me as inauthentic and overcompensating. I've also heard some stuff about FP over the years. I I was told this story by someone who covered the Nationals for MassInSports.com that FP got in the guy's face at one point a few years ago because FP felt like the writer had been too critical. I mean, what kind of crap is that? FP's trying to intimidate a writer for MassInSports.com because in FP's mind, the writer is being too critical. First of all, it's your job as a writer uh, to be critical, not overly critical, but you want objectivity. But second of all, who the heck are you to be trying to intimidate someone of like, you know, where do you stand on the Nats or, you know, whose side are you on with this? Like, get out of here with that kind of garbage. When I remember when I heard that, I wanted to scream. I was like, like, who the heck is this guy to be acting like that? Again, over the top homerism comes off as inauthentic, comes off as overcompensating. You know, it's been other stuff too. I- I've been told by people who work for Madison that actually FP and Bob Carpenter don't get along all that well. I've also been told that FP just a few years ago wanted to do games for the Miami Marlins, wanted out from doing games for the Nationals. Like, isn't that kind of funny for all of his supposed love for the Nationals? The guy wanted out to go down to Miami to call games for the Marlins a few years back. Look, man, I'm not saying that FP is a horrible person. I don't know him well. So I'm not here to try to ruin his reputation or anything like that. But what I am telling you is stuff that's pretty widely known within the business. And so I think I would be a phony if I did this segment on FP and didn't acknowledge these things that I've been told, okay? So, like, I'm not reporting any of this stuff. I'm just telling you the things that have been out there over the years when it comes to DC media. I hope, like heck, FP is innocent. I hope that none of this stuff did happen. And if he is innocent, I hope that the truth comes out because nobody deserves to be accused of something that he or she never did. But on the flip side, if he's guilty, and if this woman had to go through what she said she went through, that's not right. Nobody should have to go through something like that. And FP deserves to not only be off mass and telecast, but he deserves to be punished in terms of how his career ends up going moving forward. These stories are the worst, man, because like I said, you almost never end up truly knowing the truth. And it's like, you know that someone is either lying or totally wrong here. Like it can't be that both people are right. The accuser is right and FP is right. So either she's right and he's a complete liar or she's wrong and he's telling the truth and he's being unfairly scrutinized here. And I don't know what the truth is. I do think, though, it's a pretty good bet that FP is done calling games for the Nationals on Masson. It had been nice to see the Orioles have the surprising success that they had been having, right? 15-16 and 16 as of the 6 nothing win at the Seattle Mariners last Wednesday, the John Means no-hitter. Since then, it's been a much different story. Orioles are in the midst right now of getting humbled, getting humbled big time by the team with the best record in Major League Baseball in the Boston Red Sox. It's a four-game series, the rare Friday through Monday four-game series taking place at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And the Orioles so far are 0-3 in the series. 6-2 loss on Friday night, 11-6 loss on Saturday night, and a 4-3 loss on Sunday afternoon. O's now are 15-19. and We'll try to avoid a four-game sweep on Monday night beginning at 7.05. Jorge Lopez versus Martin Perez. Uh, Like I said, Red Sox do have the best record in the sport. This is kind of snuck up on people, especially off what happened very early in the season, right? Remember, the Orioles began their season with a three-game sweep at the Boston Red Sox, April 2nd through 4th. Since then, the Sox are 22 and 10. Red Sox are a major league best 22 and 13 
on the season. Winning percentage of 629 is by miles the best in Major League Baseball so far on the year. This is not supposed to be a Boston team that's a contender in 2021. We'll see if the success holds up, but for now, nobody's been better than the Red Sox, and the Orioles are learning that firsthand over these last three games at Camden Yards. Orioles starting pitching in this series so far really has been all over the place. Not that bad, but certainly not great. Yet Dean Kramer in the 4-3 loss on Sunday afternoon. Ultimately, three runs in five innings on five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles and a walk versus three strikeouts on 85 pitches. He allowed one run through five innings. It's, it's a shame that the line ended up being what it was. One run through five innings. They got charged with two more runs, top of the six, thanks to a one-out, two-run double that the Orioles reliever Adam Pletko gave up to Rafael Devers. Kramer had allowed back-to-back singles to begin the inning. So, you know, Kramer wasn't that bad on Sunday, and uh, I want to keep seeing Dean Kramer out there. He was coming off the best start of his season by far. One run, six innings, 5-3 win at the Seattle Mariners last Monday night. But the overall numbers for Kramer so far this season aren't good. Six starts, 623 ERA, 154 whip. Uh, you add on Saturday, another young pitcher for the Orioles, the lefty Zach Louther. Uh, he was recalled from AAA Norfolk on Saturday, ended up starting that 11-6 loss on Saturday night. And he struggled. Seven runs in two and the third innings on seven hits, a homer, a double, and five singles, and two walks versus three strikeouts on 65 pitches. Remember, Louther was the guy who the Orioles summoned from the alternate training side at Double A Bowie to pitch in that series against the Oakland A's at Camden Yards a few weeks ago. Louther tossed a scoreless top of the ninth in an 8-1 win over the A's a few Sunday afternoons ago, April 25th. The Orioles, remember, in summoning Louther, designated Wade LeBlanc for assignment. That was a corresponding roster move to LeBlanc being DFA'd. Lather then got shipped back uh, to the alternate training site at Double A Boo. He was at Triple A Norfolk, got called up to make this start on Saturday night and did not do well. And then in the 6-2 loss on Friday night, you had Matt Harvey on the mound. And it was an odd game for Harvey. Ultimately, four runs, but all of them unearned in four innings. He gave up four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch versus three strikeouts on 86 pitches. All of the runs were unearned due to an error that Harvey himself committed. Harvey tossed three scoreless innings, but then gave up the four runs in the top of the fourth, during which he committed a missed catch error with one out. He then allowed a two-out RBI single to Hunter Renfro, a two-out four-pitch walk of Franchi Cordero, and then a two-out three-run homer to the Red Sox's number nine batter, Bobby Dahlbeck, on a bomb to left field on an 0-2 pitch. That was brutal, because Harvey really had not been doing that poorly. And then on an 0-2 pitch to the Red Sox's number nine batter, Harvey gets tattooed by Bobby Dahlbeck on a moonshot to left field. Uh, A few positives for the Orioles so far in this series. So some good stuff for Ryan Mountcastle so far. And that's been good to see because Mountcastle is a promising young player who had not been doing well this season. Perhaps he's finally starting to emerge. So Mountcastle in the loss on Sunday afternoon, starting first baseman, number five batter, two out first pitch RBI single in the bottom of the first, two out RBI double in the bottom of the eighth. Mountcastle in the loss on Friday night, starting left fielder, number six batter, full count leadoff homer in the bottom of the six and two singles. Also, Austin Hayes has had some good games so far in this series, starting left fielder and number two batter in the 11-6 loss on Saturday night, starting right fielder and number two batter in the 6-2 loss on Friday night. So Hayes in game two, double and a two-run single. Hayes in game one, double, two... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Singles and a walk, and he had a terrific defensive play, a leaping catch at the wall off moving the left field to rob Alex Verdugo of a home run with a run run second, one out, and the Orioles trailing 6-2 in the top of the ninth inning. But yeah, man, so far, it's been a giant bucket of cold water on the Orioles. They are being humbled in this series against the Red Sox, as our friend the Iron Sheik would say. Make him humble! Yes, make him humble, Sheiky baby. The Red Sox are making the Orioles humble. The Red Sox are putting the Orioles in an Iron Sheik-like camel clutch, and the Orioles not doing so well right now. Make him humble! The Orioles are Bob Backlund right now in that Iron Sheik camel clutch. We'll see if that continues Monday night. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now on Tuesday's podcast. We will perhaps have a signing or signings to talk about with the Washington football team with Charles Leno Jr. and Bobby McCain visiting on Monday. Ron Rivera last week opened up about his current philosophy on franchise quarterbacks. This is something that we have to discuss and will on the podcast. Perhaps we'll do that on Tuesday. Also, we'll talk more Wizards as they are at the Atlanta Hawks on Monday night. No Bradley Beal, remember, for the Wiz. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. You know, they all get involved and they all got their gear already. And so they're going to be all colored up in, uh, in the maroon and black and yellow. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. 
For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.